On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Start with a weird question. Let's say you got your life back. Let's say you were, for example, in a coma for an extended period of time and you got your life back. You woke up. What would be the first thing you would do? First thing you would do, whatever that is, that reveals to us your passions, your pleasures, your priorities, right? If you pick up the phone, call a pizza company, that tells us something about you. If you run and hug your mom, that tells us something about you. If you go back to work, that tells us something tragic about you, right? You, you in that moment reveal what your highest priority is. When you get your life back, what you give your life to first indicates really the priority of your heart. And that, that question for Jesus is answered today. We're in Luke part 99. Next week, we finish the gospel of Luke. More than two years we've been in it. We're this close. We have seen Jesus live without sin. We've seen him die. We've seen him buried. We've seen him rise. And today in Luke part 99, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, we're going to look at how Jesus taught the Bible. We're going to see the first thing he did after he rose from death. What did he do? What did he not do? We pick it up, Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, we are told, this is the day that Jesus rose from death. So he'd been dead for three days. He comes back to life. His life is returned. What's the first thing he's going to do? Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So there's two people going for a walk. We're going to learn the name of one of them in just a moment. They were potentially even relatives of Jesus based upon related scriptures. And uh, as they're journeying, these people are having a conversation. Uh, Boy, Jesus seemed like a great guy. It's too bad that he died. Yeah, don't you wish that he was alive? Yeah, that would be awesome. I wish there was something like a resurrection. There's, There's a lot of humor in here, at least I think. Because Jesus is going to show up and have a conversation with them, sort of incognita ninja-esque. They're not going to know that it's him. He's just going to come into the conversation. And so we get to eavesdrop. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And this is that, that you can be physically alive and yet spiritually blind. And here they don't see Jesus for who he is, even though he's right there. And the sad truth is that that is the state of all people who are apart from Christ and those of us who are in Christ that choose to close our eyes to the truth of Christ. God has to open our hearts. He has to open our minds. He has to open our eyes. He has to open our understanding. And this was my experience before I was a Christian. I'd heard some things about Jesus. I'd been to church, but I didn't see Jesus as God and Savior and King and Lord. And then one day, God opened my eyes. And that's the truth. And so for those of you who have non-Christian family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, they're not stupid, they're blind. It's not necessarily that that they're opposing what they see. They don't see Jesus clearly. And that's this great illustration here. Jesus is right there and they don't see him. They don't see him for who he truly is. And so he has a conversation with them. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? What are you guys talking about? Do you see the funny comedy here? I mean, Two people are having a conversation about Jesus who's asking them what they're talking about and they don't see that it's him. And they stood looking sad, very sad. They're talking about the funeral of Jesus just a few days prior. Then one of them named Cleopas, potentially a relative, answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? 
What are you, stupid? Do you not know what's happened? There was this guy named Jesus. Everybody knows he was here. He was a great guy. They killed him. We went to the funeral. He's dead. He's totally dead. We wish he was alive. He's not alive. How hard do you think it was in that moment for Jesus not to at least smirk? Right? Like, actually, <laughs> this may shock you. Yeah, it, I think this is funny. It's a little moment. He goes on and he said to them, what things? I love Jesus. Oh, really? There was a guy named Jesus? Tell me more. I would love to learn. (laughs) Jesus is playing along, which is awesome. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. At this point, he's probably got his hand over his name tag that says Jesus of Nazareth. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers, the political and religious leaders, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Really? He was crucified? That must have been terrible. (laughs) Oh, don't show my hand. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We were hoping for more. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Yeah, the women said he rose from death and they saw an angel. Charismatic women. You can't trust their testimony. They're all emotional. So obviously this didn't happen. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. Us men folk investigated it. We didn't see the body. And he said to them, Jesus does, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Don't you believe the Bible? Was it not necessary that the Christ, the anointed one of God, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? At beginning with Moses and all the prophets, That's another way of saying the Old Testament scriptures at this point in history, the New Testament had not yet been written. He interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Coolest Bible study ever. Jesus is like, let's start in Genesis. Here I am, Leviticus, more me. Exodus, ha, me too. He just kept going. He just kept going through the Old Testament, taking all of the scriptures and connecting it to himself. This is about me, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. Here's what's really important. This is how Jesus taught the Bible. There's morality in there, but it's not primarily about morality. There's religion and tradition and history and miracles and the supernatural in there, but it's not primarily about all of that. All of that is secondary. It's primarily about Jesus. And this is a driving deep conviction by God's grace. It has been since the beginning and by God's grace, it will be till Jesus returns. This is a book that God wrote and it's all about Jesus. And you can't make any sense of this book unless you connect it all to Jesus. And anytime this book is taught and it's not primarily, firstly about Jesus, this book has not been well taught. It's about Jesus. And that's been the heart cry since the beginning. God wrote a book and it's all about Jesus. And what that means is this book is not primarily about you. It's not primarily about me. It's not primarily about us. It's about him and it's for us. But it's primarily, firstly, chiefly about Jesus. And that includes not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. And so Jesus goes to the Old Testament and he opens it up and he methodically teaches through it connecting it all to him. So they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if they were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, uh, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So we went and stayed with them. When he was at table with them, right? Start to group. You're gonna have dinner together, build their friendship, discuss the scriptures. We call this groups. What's the first thing Jesus does when he rises from death? He teaches the Bible and starts a group. 
right? These are our first priorities. The Bible's open. We learn about Jesus. We get together, break bread, have a meal, build a friendship. We call it a group. There's 500. Get in one. Jesus did. Yay, Jesus. Be like Jesus. Read your Bible. Love Jesus. Get in a group. I was expecting more enthusiasm, but we will. (laughs) I'll sell it again at the end. I'm going to sell it again at the end. Jesus loved his mom, but the first thing he did not do was hug his mom. Jesus had brothers, but the first thing he did not do is go to his brothers and say, ha ha, told you so. That would all be later. Jesus had disciples. He's going to show up to them and do the whole where's Waldo next week. But the first thing he did, he taught the Bible and joined a group. So that's first priority. Where was I before I had such a good time? Uh, oh, verse... Uh, 31, and, the, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Yay. So this is what God needs to do, right? We got a big, yay, cute little girl voice. Yay, they saw him. Okay, here's how it works. God opens our eyes so that we see Jesus as God, Lord, Savior, King of Christ. So if you have family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, enemies, they don't see Jesus for who he is. Don't get mad at them, pray for them. Keep teaching, keep answering the questions, keep bringing the scripture and wait for the Holy Spirit to open their understanding. They're not stupid, they're blind. Okay? You don't yell at blind people saying, don't you see it? That's mean. It's really mean. God's got to open their eyes like God's opened your eyes and my eyes if we are Christians. Then they said to each other, oh, and then he vanished from their sight. I don't know how that happened. We got it. There he went. What? It was awesome for a second. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us? Will he talk to us on the road and will he open the scriptures? It's all about opening the scriptures and meeting Jesus. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11, those of the other disciples and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. The charismatic ladies are right. He's alive. There was an angel. He conquered death. Good news. Jesus is alive. This is amazing. This is resurrection, not just revivification. Revivification is when someone is pronounced dead or we perform CPR, they come back to life and eventually they're gonna die. Jesus died and he rose to never die again. That's resurrection. No one, no one is like Jesus. He alone conquers death. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, also known as Peter. Then they told what had happened on the road, how he made known to them, was made known to them rather, in the breaking of bread. Three things we see here. <clears throat> number one, man, I'm so excited, I can't even breathe. Uh, <laughs> number one, Jesus rose from death bodily, physically, literally. Some say he rose from death spiritually in my heart. <clears throat> no, he didn't. He's really alive. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses, he rose spiritually. No, he didn't. He's walking, talking, eating. You know what that is? A resurrected guy. (laughs) Walking, talking, teaching, eating, dead and alive. That's exactly who Jesus is. Number two, we are spiritually blind until God opens our eyes. And it is through the teaching of the word of God that blind eyes are open. The first priority of Jesus is get people together and teach them the scriptures, teach them the word of God, teach them about the fact that God wrote a book and it's all about Jesus. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna teach you how Jesus taught the Bible. I want you to see the Bible like Jesus did. That's what I want for you. And I want you to be able to, as you read and study the Bible, to connect it all to the person and work of Jesus. And so I'm gonna teach you some things that perhaps you've heard before. And these are the kind of things that I tend to weave into the sermons often because they're important and they're significant. Paul in the New Testament does the same thing. He oftentimes tells various churches, let me remind you. So for some of you, the rest of the sermon is gonna be a reminder. And it's my great pleasure to teach you six ways. We're gonna do a whole year of Bible college in one hour or more. (laughs) And we're gonna look at six different ways to take the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus taught was about him and connect it all to him. Are you ready? 
All right. Number one. Sometimes the Old Testament teaches about Jesus through events. I'll give you two major events. Uh, The first is called Passover. Passover was an occasion where at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, a family, a small family, 60 some people, uh, was suffering from a a massive famine. So they sought refuge in a country called Egypt. They relocated there. Over the course of more than 400 years, this is Genesis and Exodus, what happened was this little family grew to be a nation called Israel of a few million people. And there was a new king, he was called a pharaoh, and he was worshiped like a god. He was worshiped as a god. And he was enslaving, mistreating, abusing, and harming God's people. And so what God said was that he wanted to deliver them. He wanted to redeem them so that they would be free to worship him. So God, the real God, showed up to the false God named Pharaoh. And he basically said, these are my people. You're hurting and enslaving them. You need to let them go. Otherwise, I'm going to punish you. Pharaoh hardened his heart, resisted the grace of God, kept fighting against God and wanted to be God. So God sent an escalating succession of plagues. And he sent a messenger named Moses. A plague is coming. Please repent. Obey God. Let the people go. He loves them. They're his people, not yours. If not, this horrible thing will happen. And it happened over and over and over. The plagues came just as God promised. What happened then was it escalated in the final plague, the killing of the firstborn. And God through Moses essentially said to the false God, Pharaoh, this is it. We're done. I've been real patient, loving, gracious, merciful, and kind. The nicer I am to you, the harder your heart becomes. You let my people go, or I will kill the firstborn son in every household in your nation, including your own household and your own son. Pharaoh did not repent. And as a result, death came to every household and the firstborn son in every home with one exception. Those homes who in faith as an act of worship to the God of the Bible, an acknowledgement of their own sin, took an animal, sacrificed it because the wage for sin is death. And that animal was a substitute showing we're sinners. We should have death come to our home. But because of our faith in the God of the Bible, his love for us, We'll sacrifice this animal. We'll take the blood. We'll paint it over the doorposts of our home. And then literally death will pass over our home and we'll be spared from the wrath of God. So death came to every home with the exception of those who in faith were covered by the blood so that the wrath of God would pass over them. That's all about Jesus. Later, when Jesus comes, many years later, his cousin, John the baptizer, looks at him and declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul tells the Corinthians that Jesus Christ is, quote, our Passover lamb who's been slain. You know why we don't celebrate Passover? You know why we don't slaughter animals? We don't need to. Jesus fulfilled Passover. Jesus is our Passover sacrifice. He shed his blood for our sin so that the wrath of God and the death from sin might pass over us. So we don't just have celebrations and annual feasts and meals. We have Jesus and we love him every day. The second event that I want to connect to the personal work of Jesus is called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it was in Jewish calendar year, the big day. They actually called it the day. And it was the big day. And it was the day when the holy God and the sinful people would deal with the sin problem that separated them. And so the people would come usually to Jerusalem, the priest, the high priest, as the intercessor, mediator, advocate between God and the people would take two goats One was the sacrificial goat, the other was the scapegoat. This was an annual tradition and it was their big high holy holiday. And over the sacrificial goat, the sins of the people would be confessed. And then that priest would take and slaughter the animal as a substitute sacrifice and the blood would be shed and the wrath of God would be poured out on that animal in their place as a substitute. 
Then the second goat was not the sacrificial goat, it was the scapegoat. If you've heard that nomenclature, it comes from the Bible. And again, the sins of the people would be confessed over the animal and rather than being slaughtered, it would be sent away. Showing Jesus is coming. He is our Yom Kippur. He is our day of atonement. His cross will ultimately achieve this. He is our high priest who mediates. He is our sacrifice who forgives our sin. And he is our scapegoat who takes it away and makes us clean. And we don't celebrate Yom Kippur. We celebrate Jesus because the whole point of Yom Kippur was preparation, anticipation, expectation for the crucifixion of Jesus. Number two, we learn about Jesus in the Old Testament through titles. There are a variety of titles in the Old Testament that were ultimately attributed to Jesus by Jesus. So if you read, for example, Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born, beginning in roughly chapter 40, all the way through to chapter 66, the dominating theme is about someone called the suffering servant. That God would send a savior, a son, who would be a suffering servant. Jesus comes and says, I have not come to be served, but to serve by giving my life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes as the suffering servant. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is in reference to the eternality of God. God is without beginning. God is without end. God is the uncaused cause. God is eternal. All that is made has been made by God. And the New Testament takes that eternal Alpha and Omega nomenclature for God and attributes it to Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We've seen it in Luke, as we've been in Luke now for more than two years. Jesus' favorite title for himself is from the Old Testament, the Son of Man. He uses that language more than 80 times, roughly 80 times in your Bible. And it comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the vision is of Jesus in eternal glory in heaven, ruling and reigning, coming into human history humbly as a man to set up a kingdom that'll never end. And Jesus says, though it was written hundreds of years before I was born of the Virgin Mary, I am the son of man. And people heard that and they said, he is claiming to be God, exactly, because he is God. And he was crucified, put to death under the charge of blasphemy for declaring himself to be God. And he rose from death three days later to in essence say, I told you so. And Jesus is alive. And he is the son of man. Furthermore, there is another title in the Old Testament used for God. It's around the burning bush with a guy named Moses. So Moses is walking along in the wilderness. There's a bush that's on fire that does not get consumed. Again, I think God has a good sense of humor. God talks to Moses through the bush. Now we tend to really this in a religious way. If you read this, you're like, yes, yes. Moses had a conversation with a burning bush. Just think about it. <laughs> if you saw a guy talking to a plant, you would call 911, right? You would not say, it's a moment with the Lord. Leave him alone. So Moses is having a conversation with a bush, not just a bush, but a bush that's on fire in Exodus chapter three. And the bush tells Moses, go to the Pharaoh, liberate my people, lead a mass emancipation for millions. Moses has a good question. Who should I tell them is making this declaration? Because I don't feel altogether confident saying, thus saith the bush. It's... It's a reasonable request. So through the bush, I think it's Exodus 3, 14, God says, tell them I am has sent you. Okay, that's a lot better than the bush. I am says, Jesus comes along, I think it's John chapter eight, verse 58. And he says this, before Abraham was, Abraham was thousands of years prior. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm eternal God, older than Abraham. 
And I was the one who met with Moses in the burning bush and told him to go liberate my people. The titles of the Old Testament point to Jesus. The events of the Old Testament point to Jesus. And the prophecies of the Old Testament point to Jesus, category three. Now, prophecy shows us that God is omniscient. He knows all things. He's sovereign. He rules all things. 25% of the Bible roughly at the time of its writing was prophetic in nature, meaning it was God through human authors by the power of the Holy Spirit revealing future events in meticulous detail because God knows the future and he rules over the future, bringing it to pass just as he promised. This makes Christianity different than other religions and it makes the Bible altogether unique. People today would love to know the future from investments to sports competitions to who am I gonna marry and how long am I gonna live? So much of our life is dedicated to trying to discern and determine what the future might hold. And the truth is we don't know because we're not God, but God does know. And as he writes the scriptures, he also reveals the future. And he through prophecy tells us exactly how Jesus will come. I can't give you all of the prophecies. There are hundreds, but I want to visit some of what I find to be the most compelling. And I do so for two reasons. Number one, for those of you who are not Christians, I want you to consider Jesus. I want you to read the book that God wrote. And I want you to see that it's all about Jesus. And I want you to wrestle with the fact that if God did not write this book, how can you potentially account for the magnificent detail around prophecy that I will share with you in a moment? Number two, for those of you who are Christians, I want you to trust that this is the book that God wrote. And I want you to see that it is superior to and unlike anything else that has ever been written or taught in the history of the world. And because it is the book that God wrote, it has authority over everyone and everything else. We'll start in Genesis 3.15. After our first parents sin, this is some 4,000 years before Jesus is even born of the Virgin Mary. God comes and gives the first prophecy. He speaks to our enemy, his adversary, Satan the serpent in the garden, Genesis 3.15. Prophecy begins with God who says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God comes and says, sin has now come into human history. I will send a savior for sinners. He, so we're looking for a male child will be born of a woman. This is the first intimation at a virgin birth. As you read the rest of Genesis, there are on a few occasions, family histories and chronologies. All of those are patriarchal, meaning it tells us who the father, the grandfather, the great grandfather was. They are not matriarchal. They do not list the mothers. They list the fathers. Here, there is no mention of an earthly father only the mention of an earthly mother. That is because Jesus would come, number one, born of a woman, that he would not have a biological earthly father, that he would be conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, that he's not a mere man, he's God become a man. And it was said that he would come and battle Satan and that Satan would harm and wound him, but he ultimately would defeat and crush Satan. And from that moment forward, there was an expectation that a woman would give birth to a son who would be the savior of the world. Continuing the storyline of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17, penned some 2,000 years before Jesus was born, God shows up to an obscure man at that time, a famous man in our time named Abraham. And this is one of the many things that God said to him in Genesis 17, 19. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you, Abraham, a son. You shall call his name Isaac, which means laughter. They're a barren elderly couple. They've been laughing at God. God always gets the last laugh, right? He's gonna impregnate Sarah at the retirement home. It's gonna be hilarious. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. He says, Jesus is coming and Abraham, he's coming through your line. He's going to be your descendant. And he's not coming from your girlfriend. 
It's coming from your wife. They had waited for God to provide a son. They had not become pregnant. Sarah cooked up this horrible idea for Abraham to, in essence, commit adultery, to sleep with another woman, gave birth to a son. The Muslims now look back and say, our son was born first. That is the seed and line of the promise. And the whole conflict between Islam, Christianity, and Judaism comes out of adultery. It's amazing what one illicit sexual act given enough generations can result in. The fight between the religions is to some degree an ancient family feud. God came, he loved the other woman and her son, but he said, it will be through Sarah, not the other woman, your son Isaac, not the other boy, that Jesus ultimately will come. So we're looking for one born of a woman without an earthly father, from the line of Abraham, through Sarah, descendant of Isaac. God is telling us how Jesus is going to come. And then he narrows it even further. Roughly 700 years before Jesus is born on the earth, Isaiah 7:14, we read this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Number one, a virgin's gonna have a baby. That really narrows it down, right? There's not a lot of pregnant virgins walking around the Middle East a few thousand years ago. This really narrows it down to one person. And she's gonna give birth, not just to a child, but a son. And we're gonna give him a name, a title, which is Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. God is coming to be with us. You'll know it's him when the virgin gets pregnant. Her name is Mary. His name is Jesus. It's a miracle of God. It's once in all of human history. Where would he be born? God's going to narrow it down even further. So we read roughly 700 years before Jesus is born in Micah chapter five, verse two. But you, O Bethlehem, that's a city, Ephrathah, that's a region, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Little town, dumpy town, rural town, hick town. Small town, right? Not the kind of place you'd think God would come from. Rural area, nothing big ever happened there. That's where God's gonna show up. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. A king is coming who, whose origin is from old, from ancient days, from eternity. He'll be born where? Bethlehem, question. Was Jesus from Bethlehem? No, he was from Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. I've traveled and ventured and journeyed in this region. It's a ways from Bethlehem to Nazareth. And what happened was Mary was the virgin. She conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. She's probably a teenage girl. Joseph decides he's gonna go ahead and marry her and he's gonna adopt Jesus. Yes, our God is adopted. It's a magnificent story. But before Jesus is born, a godless political leader who's in it for the money and the power says, I want a census taken. I want to know who all my people are so I can get all my tax revenue. So everybody needs to go to their hometown of origin where their family's from. And in the providence of God, David, Jesus' adoptive father, even though he's in the womb of Mary, that father Joseph is a long descendant of King David who came from the town of Bethlehem. So they have to go to the city of Bethlehem to register for the census. And Mary is very pregnant. And once they get to Bethlehem, Jesus is born. Where? Bethlehem. They didn't live there. They were visiting there. Why? Because this is the book that God wrote. And it's all about Jesus. All the way down to where he would be born. Furthermore, it tells us when he would be born. 400 years before Jesus was born, Malachi 3.1, we read, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord, God's coming, whom you seek, the one you've been waiting for, will come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's the God who rules over the angelic creatures. Number one, a messenger is coming. You'll know it's him. He's gonna prepare the way. Who was the messenger that prepared the way? John the baptizer, Jesus' homeschooled cousin. 
He lived in the woods. He was a strange kid. <laughs> Bugs, honey, strange diet, interesting kid. He prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. And then the Lord comes. And where did it say he would come to? Where? The temple. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, you walk up, you say, show me the temple. We'd love to, but there's a slight problem. It was destroyed in 70 AD. All we have now is a, a flat piece of ground where the temple used to be. For almost 2000 years, they will tell you, there's been no temple. So here's a clue. Whoever this person is, this savior, he had to come by when? 70 AD. If he's gonna come to the temple and the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, we've now had almost 2000 years without a temple, he had to come before 70 AD. So for those of you who are my Jewish friends, and I won't call you my brothers unless you're in Christ. But for those of you who are my Jewish friends, we love you. We believe the same Old Testament scriptures that you do. Our disagreement is we believe they're all about Jesus. And we believe you missed the most important Jewish person who's ever lived, Jesus Christ. We believe he was Messiah, God among us, the fulfillment of prophecy, the savior of the world. And we believe that God had the temple destroyed in 70 AD so that you could not have a priest because Jesus is your priest, so that you could not have a sacrifice because Jesus is your sacrifice, that you would not go to the temple because you need to come to Jesus. We love you. We read the scriptures that your people wrote and we want you to worship the God they reveal. His name is Jesus. And he came to the temple. And after that, the temple is destroyed because we don't need the temple. We got Jesus. We don't need the priests. We got Jesus. We don't need the sacrifices. We got Jesus. And this is the book that God wrote and it's all about Jesus. Furthermore, prophecy goes on to reveal what Jesus would do on the earth. A little bit of his resume and job description. How will we know it's the one? Isaiah 35, five and six, 700 years before Jesus was born, we read, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. How will you know it's him? Mute people are singing, deaf people are hearing, blind people are seeing and handicapped people are running. When you see that happening, note to self. <laughs> this is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus did all of that. Additionally, we are told that Jesus would be betrayed, that the bounty on his head would be no less than 30 pieces of silver, not 29, not 31. We read this 500 years before Jesus was born on the earth in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. And they weighed out as my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That's a portion of the temple that no longer exists, but did up until 70 AD the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, a few hundred bucks, and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. It is promised that the bounty on Jesus' head would be 30 pieces of silver. Judas Iscariot betrayed him for how much? 30 pieces of silver. And then in disgust, threw it into that portion of the temple that no longer exists today. Some of you would say, I don't think this is the book that God wrote. My question to you is this, then who wrote it? Who wrote this? Who knew the future? Multiple authors spanning hundreds and thousands of years in painstaking detail, telling us how Jesus would come and what would happen to him and what would be accomplished through him. See, the burden of proof is on you. It was on me as a non-Christian. As I started to read the book that God wrote, it was prophecy that helped to open my blind eyes. This is the book that God wrote. And it's all about Jesus. Additionally, we read how Jesus would die. 1,000 years before Jesus was even born, it was prophesied in Psalm 22:16 how he would be crucified. We read, for dogs, this is a slang term for horrible men. It's like today calling someone a wolf in our culture. It's just a, it's a horrible denigrating term. If you still use that term in the Middle East, let me just submit to you, don't. 
Don't walk up and say a Muslim country and call somebody a dog. It's a highly negative term. It's loaded. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my what? Hands and feet. The most sensitive nerve centers on the human body. Jesus was crucified through what? The hands and the feet. Here it is prophesying, predicting, promising the crucifixion of Jesus a thousand years before he was even born. And get this, hundreds of years before crucifixion even existed. God is not only promising, prophesying, predicting the crucifixion of Jesus, he's promising, prophesying, predicting crucifixion. Lastly, it is prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would rise from death. That he would rise from death. So again, back to the story of Luke. He's walking along the road. Oh, Jesus died. We were hoping he'd rise. Don't you believe the Bible? Don't you know what the scriptures say? Have you not read Moses and the prophets? And that's what I'm sharing with you. This is how Jesus taught the Bible. And I could unpack it. There's hundreds. I wish we had days to do this. But it all sort of culminates. And I think the most packed prophetic section of scripture is the second half of Isaiah 52 through Isaiah 53. And I'll share with you verses eight through 11. By oppression and judgment, 700 years before Jesus was even born on the earth, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He'd be arrested, tried, cut off from the land of the living. What is that? Dead, killed, murdered. And they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus was crucified between two guilty sinners. And with a rich man in his death, Jesus was not a rich man. He was rich in heaven. He was poor on earth. So the Bible says, for our sake, though rich, he became poor. Well, on the earth, he was homeless. He was broke. He was destitute poor. He could not have afforded a rich man's tomb in fulfillment of prophecy. But after he died, there was one of his more quiet followers, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was an affluent rich man. And he gifted to the Lord Jesus post-mortem his personal tomb so that the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. And Jesus was buried with the rich in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. What that is saying is Jesus had no sin in word or deed. Unlike you and I, he was flawless, perfect, and sinless. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's not just a victim. This is a salvation plan that the Father and Son and eternity past had agreed to. He has put him to grief and Jesus wept and Jesus grieved. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he suffered and died in our place for our sins. The cross is something that was done by us. We killed God, but it was something that was done for us. God used it to atone for our sin and guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What he's saying is after he dies for your sin, it's gonna come back and the sun is gonna shine on his face and he's gonna have an eternal forward progress of days and he's gonna delight in the salvation that he accomplishes and achieves. He's not gonna stay dead because sin reigns and death reigns where there is sin, but death could not reign over Jesus because he was without sin. And so he rose in victory over sin and death. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Once Jesus sees all the sinners and sins that he has saved, he'll be satisfied with his suffering. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, Jesus is the only righteous one. There's one who is righteous and all the rest are unrighteous. It's where the Bible says that we're all unrighteous. Here it says that there is one who is righteous. His name is Jesus Christ. My servant Make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. The question is, we who are unrighteous, how can we be declared righteous, justified in the sight of a holy and righteous God? Answer, we cannot. We cannot stand before God with our religion, our morality, our tradition, our efforts, our pride, our success, our achievement, our accomplishment and say, God, I feel that I have performed 
adequately well. God, I believe that I am essentially a good person. God, in comparison to others, I do believe that I have outperformed them. God has two categories, righteous, unrighteous. Jesus is in the category of righteous. Everyone else is in the category of unrighteous. And Jesus comes and trades places. He takes upon himself our sin, guilt, condemnation, shame, filth, and unrighteousness. And he gives to us, if we have faith in him, his righteousness, his perfection, his salvation, his forgiveness, his reconciliation with the Father. And that's exactly what he says. My servant will make many to be accounted righteous. If you want to be righteous, the answer is not do better, try harder. The answer is God wrote a book. It's all about Jesus. Trust him. Trust him for your righteousness. Trust him for your salvation. Trust him for your eternal destination. How come I'm the only one who's excited? This is fantastic. We learn about Jesus through events, titles, prophecies. Number four, Christophanies. This is where Jesus is eternally existing as the son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And sometimes before he's born of Mary, he makes a little cameo appearance, shows up, plays a little Where's Waldo in the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples. In Genesis 18, Abraham is having a conversation with somebody who's God. That's Jesus. Jesus shows up and hangs out with Abraham. Furthermore, there's a guy named Jacob in Exodus 32, 30, and he's got an all-night UFC cage fight wrestling match with somebody. And it's Jesus who came down to wrestle with him all night. At the end of the fight, I think Jacob was thinking, I held in there all night. That was a long fight. I'm pretty tough. And Jesus says, I could have taken you at any point, reaches out his finger, touches his hip and cripples him. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I'm wrestling with God. Additionally, I told you that Jesus showed up to talk to Moses through the burning bush. He also shows up in a fiery furnace with a guy named Daniel, right? If you're a VeggieTale fan, it's Rack Shack and Benny, right? <laughs> if you're just old school Bible, it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they take these three worshipers of God, these young men, they throw them in a fiery furnace. And then there's a fourth guy. Like, who's the fourth guy? Who is it? It's Jesus, and he gets them out of that furnace. And one of my favorites is, it's in Isaiah 6, and I've shared it many times. A guy named Isaiah goes on to write over the course of more than 40 years, the rule of many kings, the whole book of Isaiah, they call it the fifth gospel because it's got so much Jesus in it. And his public ministry really commissions in Isaiah 6. And he sees heaven open. It's this majestic, glorious revelation. And he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple and the angels surround him. And day and night they worship him crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And Isaiah says, and I'm a man of unclean lips. I've said some things I shouldn't have said. And I come from a people of unclean lips. I'm a dead man. I've seen the Lord. Then an angel takes a hot coal and presses it to his lips. Your sin is atoned for. You're a new man now and your mouth now belongs to me. You're gonna be a prophet and say what I tell you to say. So Isaiah says, all right, Lord, tell me where you want me to go. Tell me what you want me to say. I'm your man. Who did he see? John chapter 12, verse 41 says, quote, Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke of his glory. It's the same picture that John has of Jesus in the book of Revelation. It's the same picture of Jesus that you and I will have when we see him face to face. No longer humble, marginalized, beaten, poor Galilean peasant, but risen, ruling, reigning, resurrected, glorious, King of kings, Lord of lords, high and exalted, worshiped by angels, adored by nations, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, I have the best job in the world. 
I really love my job. Thank you for letting me teach the Bible. Number five, we see Jesus in the Old Testament through types where somebody does something that's a little bit like Jesus, but he comes along and does it bigger and better. So history starts with the first Adam and Jesus is called the last Adam in places like 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and Romans 5, 12 through 21. And the first Adam sinned and the last Adam atoned for sin. And through the first Adam, the human race fell and through the last Adam, members of that race can be saved. Through the first Adam, there was condemnation. Through the last Adam, there can be salvation. Through the first Adam, we inherit a sin nature. And through the last Adam, we receive a new nature. Through the first Adam, we're born sinners. And through the last Adam, we're born again saints. And the first Adam turned from God in a garden. And the last Adam turned to God in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And the, and the first Adam was a senior, sinner and, and the last Adam is, is a savior of sinners. And, and, the, and the first Adam yielded to Satan and the, and the last Adam defeated Satan. And, and the first Adam, he sinned a tree. And the last Adam, he, he atoned for sin on a tree. And, and the first Adam brought thorns and the last Adam wore a crown of thorns. And, and the first Adam was naked and unashamed and the last Adam was stripped naked and bore our shame. And everybody's born in Adam. My hope is that you would be born again in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the better, greater Adam. As well, we read the Old Testament and there's priests and they mediate between people and God. Jesus is our great high priest. God became a man to mediate between men and women and God. That's why Paul tells Timothy, there's only one mediator between us and God. It's not religion. It's not the church. It's not morality. It's the man Christ Jesus. And he is our priest who brings us to God and brings God to us. In the Old Testament as well, there's prophets who speak for God and Jesus is the word of God and he is a preacher and teacher of the word of God. Furthermore, we see kings who rule and reign and it reminds us that Jesus is a greater king. He's the king of kings. He has a kingdom that will never end, that has perfect justice and provision for all. In the Old Testament as well, we read about shepherds who care for wayward sheep. We're the sheep. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. We read of judges who bring justice and Jesus tells us in John 5 that the father judges no one, but he's entrusted all judgment to the son that Jesus is our judge. We see in the Old Testament sacrifices revealing to us that Jesus would come as our sacrifice to give himself for our sins. We see the temple, which is the meeting place between men and God. It's that connection point, that holy place. And Jesus is the greater temple. And Jesus is God among us. And now we don't go to a place to worship. We go to a person to worship. His name is Jesus Christ. And he comes to be with us and to make our bodies a temple in which God is glorified and the presence of God dwells so that we live a new life, not just a better life, but a new life. Not a life so that God would be pleased with us, but because in Christ he already is and through Christ in us, we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be new people living new lives by the presence of God as the temple of God to the glory of God because we're the people of God. And all of it is about Jesus. So again, Jesus is walking around along the road and, and he asks him, don't you know the Bible? It's all about me. And he starts unpacking in succession, various ways. I wish I could have been there. Best Bible study ever. Lastly, number six, there is like service where someone does something that Jesus does greater and better. So early in the Bible, the first two brothers are Cain and Abel. Like many brothers, they, they're competitive and they fight. And they come to worship God and Abel is a righteous man and Cain is a jealous man. He's jealous of his brother. And what Cain does is he kills the innocent Abel. Jesus is a better Abel, we're a worse Cain. God comes to earth and we kill him though he's the righteous one. And Jesus is a better Abel in that he did not remain dead like Abel did. He rose from death.
that makes him a better Abel. As well, when Abraham was living in the land of his father and God came to him and said, I'm sending you on a mission to a new place to start a new people, a new humanity. Jesus is the greater Abraham. He left his father's house. He came to this forsaken earth. He came to set up a new humanity through faith in him. Abraham's descendants are many, physically speaking. Jesus' descendants are more, spiritually speaking. A few billion of us on the earth today are descendants of his mission to leave his father's house and to come here and to seek us to be his people. Furthermore, we meet then a guy named Isaac. He was a promised son. He was a beloved son. He was a firstborn son. He was an anticipated son. He was a miraculous son. He was born to Abraham and Sarah, though they were elderly and barren. And once they got that boy, they loved that boy. And God came to him and asked him to do something to his son that was unthinkable, to offer him as a sacrifice to murder his own boy, the boy he'd waited his whole lifetime for. That's the kind of thing that the false gods of Chemosh and Molech and even abortion and murder in our own day worship. Murder your child. The God of the Bible never says that. And Abraham, by faith, I'm sure though confused, sought to obey God. Hebrews 11 says, he believed that even if Isaac died, God could bring him back from death. So even Abraham believed in the hope of resurrection. And what happens then is Isaac is an adult boy, son. He carries his own wood on his back to the place that God had designated for his death. He, though a younger, stronger man, willingly lays himself down to die at the hand of his own father. And as Abraham takes the knife and is about to plunge it into his firstborn, beloved, promised, covenantal son, a messenger of the Lord, perhaps Jesus, cries out, Abraham, there's no need to murder Isaac. There'll be another day when a greater father offers a greater son. And Jesus comes as the greater Isaac. He too carries his own wood on his back to his place where he would willingly lay down his life and that the father would agree to the death of the son. And all of this happened in roughly the same region and area, very close by where Jesus was crucified because there's a greater father than Abraham, God the father. There's a greater son than Isaac, Jesus, and all of that was to show us how God would save us. Additionally, there then comes along a man named Joseph. He is betrayed by his brothers. He is reckoned for dead, put in a hole. And he comes forth to ultimately rise up to be a leader who saves many lives. Jesus comes along as the greater Joseph, disowned, abandoned, betrayed by his own brothers, put in a hole and left for dead, but came forth to save a multitude that is even greater than the multitude that Joseph saved physically, Jesus saves spiritually. He's the greater Joseph. Along comes a man named Moses. He was an unexpected man to be a prophet and leader of God's people. But God raised him up to proclaim deliverance for the people of God and to mightily proclaim the word of God. He prophesied about the coming of Jesus in places like Deuteronomy 13 and 18, the great prophet Jesus who would come. Jesus comes as the greatest prophet ever. He comes in the lineage ministry speaking of Moses. He proclaims the word of God. He calls people to repent of sin. He comes to also deliver us from slavery. And when we tend to think of slavery, we tend to think of American slavery, where someone or something you hate enslaves you. When the Bible speaks of slavery, it also includes self-selected pharaohs and rulers. We choose food, alcohol, people, sex, fear of man, pleasure,
comfort, religion. We choose our own gods. We put our hands through the shackles. We accept our own fate and we destroy our own lives. And Jesus comes as the greater Moses. He comes to defeat bigger pharaohs. He comes to liberate more slaves so that they might become free worshipers. Jesus is the greater Moses. Job comes along as an innocent man. Satan opposes him and harms him. His friends are of no help, but God ultimately vindicates him. Jesus comes along as the greater Job. He too is opposed by Satan. He does suffer. His friends are of no help, but God ultimately vindicates him and blesses him as he did Job because Jesus is the greater Job. There's a king named David who comes along. He's an unexpected king. He's a little boy from a poor family in a rural area. And he rises up to be the greatest king in the history of the nation. And Jesus comes from the lineage of David and he's a greater David and he is an unexpected leader. He comes from a teenage girl in a small town from a rural family and he is the king of kings. He is the greatest king. He is God among us. He's the greater David. Furthermore, there's a guy named Jonah. Make sure when you read the Bible stories to your kids, it's not about Jonah, it's not about David, it's not about Moses, it's not about Abraham. It's always about Jesus. Jonah comes along and he rebels against God's call to communicate the truth of God to a pagan lost nation that he doesn't like. He's got racism, classism, all kinds of ism issues. So ultimately he gets thrown overboard off a boat, a fish swallows him. The fish then gives him a last class ticket to Nineveh, pukes him up on the beach. Stinking, frustrated, weird three days. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, walks into Nineveh, says a few words, basically, God hates you, it's gonna go bad, goodbye. Walks away and like half a million people get saved. Because the power is in the word of God, not necessarily the messenger. And somebody say, I don't think that happened. Jesus did. Jesus comes along and says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, I'm gonna go into the earth three days and three nights. As he came out alive, I'm coming out alive. As he was used to save a multitude, I'm going to save even more people. Jesus is the greater Jonah. There's also a guy in the Bible named Boaz. Greatest love story after Jesus in the church in the whole Bible. Boaz is a good guy, godly man. The Bible calls him a a worthy man. He's holy, righteous, older, single, got a job. He's what we're looking for. (laughs) He's not a boy who could shave. He's a guy with a job and a Bible and a clue. He's a good guy. And he's looking for a girl, wants to get married. He's got his own business. He ends up picking as his wife the most unexpected woman. There's not a guy here that your, here's what I'm seeking in a wife list, list, looks anything like Ruth. Let's just go through her resume. Okay, Moabite race, cursed of God, product of incest. Here we go. All right, not a virgin. She'd been previously married to an idiot who died. And it kind of looks like God whacked him, if you read the story. (laughs) She's from a foreign country, so she's not, one of your kind. You're supposed to marry with your kind. There was some racial issues in that day. Furthermore, she, she may not be a believer. She says she is, but she's brand new to her faith. Oh, and she's broken homeless. She's gleaning in the fields, which is basically dumpster diving. And if you choose her, it's like a Groupon, buy one, get one free. She also comes with a mother-in-law. Now, <laughs> It's not even her mother. It's her dead loser husband's mother, whose name was Naomi, which means sweetheart. She was so frustrated, she legally changed her name to Bitter. Right? If you, hi, my name's Bitter. Wow, is that what it says on your driver's license? Yes. I'm with Ruth. Oh, what a deal. This is who Boaz picks. I'll take Ruth and Bitter. That's who I'll take. (laughs) And they ultimately are used of God to give birth to a guy named Jesus. Jesus is from that 
crazy family line. And Jesus is the greater Boaz. And he takes us people who are worse than Ruth and Naomi and he marries us and he loves us and he calls us his bride, the church. And Jesus is a greater Boaz. This guy named Nehemiah, he rebuilds a city called Jerusalem so that God's people could have a home. Jesus is a greater Nehemiah. He's creating a new Jerusalem, Revelation says, for an eternal home for God's people. We could go on and on and on and I'd love to. But God wrote a book and it's all about Jesus. And as he's walking along the road, his first priority after rising from death, we need to get a community group together, sit down and have dinner. We need to talk about the scripture so that people know the Bible. That's Jesus' first priority. Be in God's word and look for Jesus. If you don't have a Bible, we give them away. Take one with you. If you wanna buy a good study Bible, the ESV study Bible, in my opinion, the best that's ever been written. It's fantastic. Read the book that God wrote. See Jesus in every page. Get in a group, talk with people, do life, have Jesus' priorities, be your priorities. And additionally, if you're a person who's been taught, do me a favor this week, say thanks. Maybe this was your parents, your grandparents, an old pastor, a young life leader, a campus crusade for Christ leader, whomever. And I'm not talking, send me a thank you, Mark. I'm the most encouraged guy, I'm fine. I'm talking who has really done for you what this experience was for these people, how Jesus taught them. Who's kind of done that for you? Tell them thanks. So you know what, this week we were in Luke and I'm so thankful because what Jesus did for them, you did for me. You opened the book that God wrote and you told me about Jesus. And I'm so thankful for that. And then be that person to someone else in the grace of God. Answer their questions, teach your kids. And some of you say, I've talked to them and their eyes are closed and they're blind and they don't see it. That's how it started for these people. And Jesus kept talking to them until their eyes opened. So don't stop talking to people. Don't stop praying for people. Don't stop pursuing people. This is... This to me is humbling, it's overwhelming, it's amazing, it's encouraging. Because I, I get to do what Jesus did. I get to teach the Bible. So I wanna publicly say thanks. Thanks for letting me teach the Bible. I rant and rave, I go way too long. I mean, what we call a sermon, most people call a service, right? But it's amazing because the power is in the word of God and God has blessed his word. And so let, let me tell you where we're at. I mean, all this has happened where we're going through Luke. Luke, now we're on Luke part 99. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of comical, right? It's like, what's the trick? Um, God wrote a book, uh, Jesus is alive, yay. It's, I mean, that's kind of our thing, right? Like, that's all we got. We're a band with one song, we play it loud. That's it, that's all we got. Uh, play it again, all right. <laughs> all right, we're glad to do it. 